retributively act toward his oppressors by killing their children. I don't think that that is consistent with uh, Jesus' ethic, but it doesn't mean that there isn't an authoritative reason that God included that passage within his text. So long as by we say what it teaches, we, we mean what God intends to teach through it, right? Because yeah, right. mm. ultimately God is the primary author of scripture. Error in terms of science or theology or ethics or something else, I don't say, oh, the text is an error. Now it's, it's uh, authority is being eroded away. Rather, what I say is I'm not sure what God is doing here and I need to figure it out. Hey everyone, this is What's Your Pastor Didn't Tell You. Today I'm on with Dr. Randall Rouser. We're going to be talking about inspiration and inerrancy and how that fits with the world of science and Genesis and all that types of stuff. Randall, Dr. Rouser, how are you doing today? And uh, just tell us a little bit about your background on the topic. Well, Zach, I'm doing great, even better since I've joined you. And in terms of my background, I, mean, I have a PhD in systematic theology from King's College, University of London. I've been teaching at the seminary and college level for 20 years now. I've written 14, well, written 11 books, co-written three others on a variety of topics. So I'm not a specialist in Genesis per se. I'm a systematic theologian, but I certainly have thought about the issues of inerrancy and inspiration a fair bit. Awesome. Okay. So can you tell us, you know, what are just the most popular views of inerrancy and inspiration, just the general overview. Sure. Well, when I say uh, popular, this is anecdotal, as you can imagine, but I'm certainly familiar with some of the main views that circulate. Uh, when it comes to sort of um, evangelical Christianity and I think more broadly traditional orthodoxy, you'd have two views of inspiration that are the most common, the dynamic view and then the verbal plenary view. The dynamic view being that God inspired the thoughts of the writer, but did not determine what their words would be. And the verbal plenary view being that God inspired the very words that were written down. So those would be the two most common views of inspiration. Uh, now, you would also have other views of inspiration. And, and I'll propose another view later on. So I, I don't really find myself among the dynamic or verbal inspirationist views. Uh, in terms of inerrancy, uh, so that means that the, the view that, that I find commonly in terms of inerrancy is to understand that uh, the Bible is without error in all the affirmations of the human author or all the speech acts of the human author. Uh, the qualification, first of all, being that that only applies to the autographs. So in other words, the original writings, not to subsequent copies, which I think is a necessary qualification, given that um, we don't have any of the original autographs and we do have variant readings between the extant copies by which we compose the Bibles that we do have today. Um, uh, Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman, in his book, Misquoting Jesus, makes this polemical point, I would say, where he says there are more variant readings or errors uh, in in the extant New Testament documents that we have than there are words in the New Testament. Now, that sounds like a really bad thing, but in fact, what he's simply doing there, and I don't know if he's intending to mislead, can't get into his mind, but it is misleading, because what he's playing off on there is the fact that you have 20,000 Greek and Latin manuscripts from the early church, and that's his data set. 
And yeah, uh, when you get that many variant readings, you're going to get some errors emerging among the copies. But that is not uh, that doesn't should not undermine our confidence in the New Testament documents. Rather, it's simply testimony to how widely they were copied in the early church. Regardless, suffice it to say, the main point for us is that the copies do have errors. Uh, but on this view of inerrancy, the original autographs would not. And then you would uh, finally just have some additional qualifications with respect to inerrancy that it has to be with respect to the genre and standards of writing, history, whether the history or something else at the time. So, for example, if John puts the cleansing of the temple at the beginning of his gospel, but the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, place it at the beginning of Passion Week, um, you could propose that there are two different cleansings and remove the apparent error, or you could just say that you know, in the standards of history writing in the first century, that you could have a lot of flexibility thematically as to the sequence of placing events, so that even if it did happen at the time the synoptics identify, John's not in error in placing it when he does. So anyway, that that's some quick statements uh, explicating the first view of inerrancy. The view that I would hold would be different, however. Yeah, well, go ahead and give your view what your take is on that. Okay, so so my take is is that uh, there are errors involved in the pronouncements, the speech acts of the human authors. I think that's just an empirical fact. I think that you have scientific errors. Uh, I think that you have, in cases, ethical errors. For example, uh, William Webb wrote an entire book on corporal punishment in the Bible. He points out how uh, the standard teaching on corporal punishment is in, in among the biblical authors is in terms of the wisdom of physically hitting, indeed beating small children, young children, slaves as well. And as he collates that teaching, hitting them up to 39 times with a whip or a rod, uh, and you can leave scars and you can do it in anger. And that's the way that you should raise children in the fear of the Lord. Now, that's an entire monograph that William Webb wrote on arguing that point. Like This is what the biblical authors actually teach. The problem is that that is not the way that we raise children, nor the way that we think, I believe, that it is advisable to raise children. So what I would say is I think that that is an, a moral error on the part of those authors, that it's not prudent to, to physically beat your children and that you can raise them in the fear of the Lord without having physically ever hit them, let alone beaten them. Um, so then what we say is, well, then there seems to be, I think the category we'd want to invoke at that point is accommodation that got accommodated to the limited perspectives of the human authors, but then sought to bring them beyond those limited perspectives. It doesn't change the fact, however, that there are errors in scripture with respect to the human authorial speech acts. Another example where you see that in terms of a theological error, I think, would be in the imprecatory psalms. For example, when the imprecatory psalmist says that God laughs at the coming destruction of the wicked, uh, this psalmist clearly wants to convey that, that God takes some sort of pleasure or delight in inflicting punishment upon the wicked. It seems to me, however, and it has seemed to many other readers as well, that that is intention not only with passages like Ezekiel 18.23 that talk about God taking no delight in, in the suffering and the punishment of the wicked, but also in who we believe God to be revealed as in Jesus. So I think what we would say is that that reflects the, the perspective of the human author in the moment, expressing their human anger and so on, but not a view that we should adopt as to who God is. I mean, even the idea of 
monotheism or Trinitarian monotheism, the earliest biblical documents are not monotheistic. They're written in a polytheistic milieu. So when when we read in the Ten Commandments to have no other gods before Yahweh, that was quite literal. And the assumption, the background assumption there is that there are other deities, but that they are subservient to Yahweh and we should not worship them. Of course, today, the Christian monotheist believes there are no other deities at all. That would be an example of progressive revelation. But the implication of that is that the human authors were to some degree within error in terms of their understanding theologically of how many deities there are. Uh, you could easily enumerate other examples with respect to Genesis and the understanding of creation. The, the point I think then that we should say is not that we abandon the doctrine of inerrancy, but rather that we qualify it not with respect to the human authorial uh, intent, but rather the divine authorial intent. In other words, the Bible is without error in all that God affirms through Scripture, but what God affirms through Scripture may vary at points from what the human author affirms. Uh, now that was uh, pretty hard hitting. So you're gonna you're, you're gonna have some people that really like that and uh, really don't. So that'll be fun to get into. Okay, so uh, maybe you got into it as you went, but in the beginning you talked about empirical errors, uh, and I guess in the way you said something about speech. Uh, could you possibly go into more detail? What do you mean by empirical? Like we can actually see it? Is that what you're saying? Uh, uh, what I'm saying is it's it's something you discover a posteriori. In other words, you discover it by going out and examining the world is, is what I'm meaning. Okay. So for example, if you say, um, I mean, it's possible that physically beating children is the best way to raise them. But that would be an empirical question, one that you would you would uh, unless you can just appeal directly to imminent moral intuition. Uh, but setting that aside, I think, no, you can go out and you can see what are the best ways to raise a child. And I think empirically, certainly there's an abundance of evidence in child developmental psychology today that the best way to, to raise a child is not physically to beat them. And so that would be an example of some kind of evidence that we've come upon which then seems to be in significant tension with what the human author professes in terms of how to raise children. Now, there are still principles that we can extract from the text, of course. So, for example, in Proverbs 13, 24, uh, we read, whoever spares the rod hates their children. Um, the one who loves their child is careful to discipline them. That, that's what we read there. Now, in passages like that, however, the Hebrew is referring to a sebet, so a rod is like a physical implement that you hit your child with. And again, I think that it is empirically evident that that is not the way to raise your child optimally. Having said that, there is a principle you can't extract from the passage, which is that it is important to exercise discipline and authority over your child if you want to raise them appropriately. But physically beating them with a sebet is not the advisable, optimal way to raise the child and exercise that authority. And so that is where you maintain something of what the human author said, but still recognize there's some degree of moral error in the human author's advice. That's very fascinating. So it seems like you would you would say that the scripture is inerrant in all that it affirms or teaches, but not just like the individual thoughts of the writers. Is that, is that a good appropriation of that? Well, so long as by we say what it teaches, we, we mean what God intends to teach through it, right? Because yeah, right. mm. ultimately God is the primary author of Scripture. Mm. God is using the words of human authors, but God can use the words of human authors in a way that diverges from the intent of those human authors. 
So, for example, when we have um, in Hosea, out of Egypt, I called my son. I, we don't need to think, and I, and I suspect we shouldn't think that Hosea had in his mind this is a messianic prophecy, because mm-hmm. Hosea, within the context, was clearly referring back to Israel. However, within Matthew, God now adds a new dimension to the original meaning of Hosea. This is what theologians have, have often called the census plenier, which is means the fuller sense of Scripture. And the fuller sense of Scripture may go beyond what the human author ever intended. In Psalm 137, verse 9, when, when the human author says, blessed is he who takes their babies and dashes them against the rocks, he's really ticked off. And in that moment, what he wants to do and what he thinks would be blessed is to uh, retributively act toward his oppressors by killing their children. Uh, I don't think that that is consistent with uh, Jesus' ethic, but it doesn't mean that there isn't an authoritative reason that God included that passage within his text. And the challenge of the Christian reader is to figure out, well, then what is God doing? And what is he teaching in Psalm 137.9? Gotcha, I see. Okay, so when you talk about inerrancy, do, in your opinion, do we need inerrancy for the scripture to be trustworthy? Uh, well, so first of all, I think, again, that uh, when I talk about inerrancy, I'm going to talk about it with respect to divine authorial intent rather than human authorial intent, because I think you just invite all sorts of problems when you commit yourself to saying what the human author professed was without error. Uh, now, in terms of trustworthiness, I the term I tend to prefer from, from the Christian tradition is sufficiency. So I think that accomplishes really what we want the, to accomplish here in terms of our bibliology, which is that scripture is sufficient or adequate for the purposes for which God has given it to us. And yes, I think you can have a text that is sufficient, really whether or not it, it is with, without error, certainly with the human respect. Now, the, the problem with, with, with divine authorial intent, it seems to me that that if there are things that God intended in Scripture, such as I defined it in terms of divine authorial intent, but they are in error, then that would be cataclysmic, because that what that would do would be to impugn the divine author. So um, God, in that case, would not be omniscient or maximally prudent, maximally wise, and that would be a serious concern. So I would be very reluctant to to give up what I'm committed to in terms of divine authorial inerrancy. I think that you should maintain that. I also speak out of this as somebody who did a degree in English literature 30 years ago. And when I did my degree in English literature, I mean, it's very important to respect the integrity of a human author's text. You don't play around with the text. You don't revise it. Um, you you wrestle with what the human author has left us here. And, and I think how much more when it comes to a divine author, you, you don't mess with God's text. You simply submit to it. Fascinating. Okay, so question for you. Does does it need to be inerrant to have authority in our lives? I, I will I'll say this that that one of the probably the major criticism of the concept of inerrancy is that is that it just gets us focused in the wrong area. Because first of all, inerrancy as a concept tends to be it's very atomistic. It tends to think in terms of simple, discrete linguistic units, you know, that you're thinking about individual propositional statements or affirmations, rather than looking at the text as an organic whole. 
And there's always a danger that, that when you get so focused on individual literary affirmations, individual propositional units, it's kind of like you, you lose the big picture because you're always looking at the canvas from an inch away and you're never taking in the whole thing and appreciating how it all works together. And so I appreciate that as a general concern about the focus on inerrancy. And related to that is a concern that some of the focus on inerrancy in the modern period, I think, has been indicative of a sort of Cartesian angst, meaning that people are they're concerned that they need to uphold the full authority of Scripture by being able to rebut any objection to Scripture, any challenge to any affirmation within it. And so they have to def defend every propositional affirmation within it. And I I do think that we, we don't have to worry about Cartesian certainty in this way from, you know, Rene Descartes, that we have to have the certainty that has rebutted every possible objection. And I agree that we should look at linguistic holes and not just propositional units. That said, I still think there is value in the concept of inerrancy as I've defined it with respect to divine authorial intent, because I think it really is important what God intended to do with every linguistic unit within the Bible. Fascinating. Could you possibly give us an example of a way in which it is authorial? Um, obviously, a lot of people here might be trying to wrap their head around how it's used, how you're using the terms inerrancy and inspiration. So could you give us an example of that? Oh, sort of how it's authoritative? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, like what moral teachings? What exactly? Well, um, okay, so 2 Timothy 3, let me read 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17. Uh, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know that from that from whom you learned it, and from how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So we'll just pause there. That's verse 15. So the point of the Scriptures Paul is saying here is to make us wise for salvation. Then he goes on. He says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So Paul's statement as to what the point of scripture is, is simply this. Equip us for salvation in Christ by teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training us so that we are equipped for good works. And so when you talk about keeping the main thing the main thing, that's the main thing when we're talking about scripture. It, it is not to, it's not to be a handbook for life. Um, it's not to tell us how God created the world scientifically. It's not the one unique authoritative account of world history. What it is, is God's manual for us to guide us into becoming apprentices of Jesus who take up our crosses daily, uh, loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. It is ultimately for the formation of us into the people of God. That's the point of what Scripture is there for. And we should be able to recognize that and read consistent with that end while having all sorts of interesting and, and important but nonetheless non-essential debates about things like interpreting origins and so on. Because uh, that's just not at the very heart of what Scripture is here for. Fascinating. So you kind of got into that as far as the super relevant passage. Um Let's, um, yeah, I just want to talk about that, actually. So so you gave your specific reasoning. You gave a little background context, few verses before that. Uh, but obviously, a lot of people will say that, you know, that specific passage 
uh, it, you know, it, for, it refers to God's word, God's God breathed word, like referring to, I guess, the Old Testament or maybe even the whole entire Bible. Um, I mean, most people will say that, I mean, most people I've heard will say that, okay, it's referring to the entire Bible. Do you have an issue with that? Or how does that work? No. Well, so I don't think Paul is intentionally in his own mind referring to uh, the 39 books of the what we call the Old Testament and the 27 books of what we call the New Testament. I don't, I don't think Paul has that in his mind because the New Testament as a canonical list did not exist yet. In fact, I think the earliest canon list for the New Testament we find is the Muratorian canonical list from about the year 190. Uh, and that has 22 books from our New Testament. So the 27 books we recognize did not exist until a couple centuries, perhaps, after Paul. I mean, the earliest comprehensive letter of the Old and New Testament is the Festal Letter of Athanasius in 367. Uh, now, that's extant, so there could have been earlier authoritative canonical lists. But the point is that, yeah, Paul didn't have in mind explicitly all Scripture referring to the Old and New Testament as we have them. However, when we talk about what I earlier said was the census plenier, the fuller sense of scripture, what God is intending to communicate, I believe what God is intending to communicate here is ultimately a reference both to the Old and the New Testaments. And so 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17 is self-referential, even though Paul didn't even know that, but it's referring to itself as part of that canon that the church now recognizes. So yes, I'd have no problem recognizing that the passage applies to all of scripture as we have it. Wow, that's very fascinating. Not a view I've heard. Okay, so another thought on that topic is, you know, it says all scripture is God breathed. So a lot of people are going to say, okay, it's literally like God breathed. Like that's God's word spoken into the writer and then the writer just writes it down. Uh, do you think that's a good interpretation of the text? Well, you said literal, they're describing this hypothetical interlocutor that they're speaking that it's literally God-breathed. It clearly isn't literal, however, because it's a metaphor. Be to God doesn't literally have breath, right? To talk about God breathing out is, is a way of describing God's intimate communication with the formation of this text for us. Uh, by It's as if God spoke in his verbalization, like a human speaking out, uh, you know, emitting sound waves that can be heard by vibrating eardrums, that that's equivalent to what God was doing, but it's still a metaphor. However, the metaphor is intended to convey God's intimacy in the process, and they have no problem with recognizing God as intimately in the process. Uh, so, so there's that. But but we should be careful that Second Timothy three sixteen Theopneustos or God breathed is not. Um, is not a theory of inspiration, and it doesn't really commit us to a theory of inspiration. We have to develop theories of inspiration as we engage with and reflect upon the text. Interesting. Okay, we'll get into that. So are there any other relevant passages you think about the inspiration of Scripture? My, my personal one's important, you know, Second Peter 3, 15 to 17. Um, that might be interesting to talk about. Do you have any in mind? Well, the, the one other one I hear quite a bit is Second uh, Peter one twenty one. So for prophecy never had its origin in human will, but the prophets through humans, uh, though humans spoke by God as carried along by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so that was a very influential passage, I think, in Christian history, because it's describing 
this process. Now, interestingly, the process that's described there seems to be much like the the one that you were describing some people as thinking of, that God sort of just, it's almost like, like the person is a passive vessel at this point, and God is simply using the person kind of like... Um, uh, an instrumentalist, someone, a flautist playing a flute, right? And just blowing through the flute. And then the music is produced at the other end. Well, God is the one playing the flute. We are the, or the human author is the flute. And then the music produced is scripture. And so all that the human author has to do is be a vessel in the hand of God. And, and that human author is doing nothing. I would be careful, however, uh, about reading too much into a passage like 2 Peter one twenty one. And for one thing, I would say, because uh, the text itself specifically only refers to prophecy. Uh, and so it's not a general model for how all of Scripture is formed. And if we look at the diversity of genre of, within Scripture, it's a library. Something like the Proverbs are clearly very different from prophecy. The, if the prophet speaks with the intimacy of thus saith the Lord, it's very different with the Proverbs, which are sharing pithy wisdom, that is often from outside of the Hebrew tradition altogether. So Proverbs includes like the pagan wisdom of Anamenope, for example. Um, and this is something, of, or Hammurabi. So, so this is wisdom that is completely outside of the Jewish tradition, but gets appropriated into Proverbs. Um, but it's not then necessarily the process described seemingly in 2 Peter one twenty one. Gotcha. Yeah. Could we talk about, um, yeah, as I mentioned, second Peter three fifteen. uh, let's see where it says, um, just as our dear brother, Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him, uh, seems to, it seems to me that he's, he's making a point that it's, um, you know, it's inspired. Let's see. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His later letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. Almost saying that that, that is God, like Paul's writing is scripture there. Yeah, so so the, it's an interesting passage. Um, he does use the word Greek graphe there, for which is used for the other. Now graphe could also, we get graphology right from that Greek word, but it could, it's this sort of catch-all referring in this context seemingly to scriptures. And so he seems to be referring to Paul's writings as already having the authority recognized by as scripture um, now in terms of that passage that's one of the reasons now i'm not a new testament scholar uh, but that's one of the reasons why many scholars most scholars believe that uh, second peter is not the same author as first peter uh, and that second peter is likely pseudopigraphic in other words peter was not the original author of second peter uh, and second peter is commonly dated into the um early second century. Now, I don't, and, and one of the reasons then it would be that um, Paul's letters, like if Peter died uh, in the early 60s under Nero, was martyred under Nero in about 64, uh, and if you put Second Peter then into the early 60s or late 50s, it, it seems very implausible from a historian's perspective that Paul's letters, which were being written at that time, were already at the time that they had been written, being recognized as scripture equivalent to, to the Old Testament Hebrew texts. So that's some of the reasoning that biblical scholars have. The others is that 2 Peter, in terms of the Greek, has come very, very different from 1 Peter. 
And, and it's very difficult um, for New Testament critics to, to believe they came from the same hand. Now, I am not a New Testament scholar. And so I'm just relaying what, what a common, the most common view is today. And it raises an interesting question then for a Christian. Is it possible, at least, that Second Peter is pseudopigraphic, that it did not have Peter as the original human author? Or does our understanding of the authority of Scripture depend upon Peter being the author of Second Peter? And I think that we should be open to exploring that question and thinking about it theologically. But at least keep in mind it's always possible, even if you think Peter is the author of Second Peter and that uh, Peter was already recognizing Paul's writings as having the authority of Scripture in the early 60s or late 50s, recognizing that could be wrong and that it could be a text from decades later that wasn't written by Peter. Um, is it possible that God could have done that? Now, often people say, well, God couldn't have done it that way because God would be lying. But of course, you're only lying if if you make a linguistic statement, like a, a speech act towards someone else with uh, that you know is false, with the intent that they come to believe it is false. And I don't think that you can conclude from the idea that, that God may have appropriated pseudepigraphic writings into the canon of Scripture. You can't decide just based upon that fact, what God's intent was, and thus whether God was intending to deceive people. And I certainly don't think God was intending to deceive people if he did include a pseudepigraphic text within the canon of Scripture. So that's uh, just some quick thoughts on that question. So you would just say that it doesn't seem like it's part of the, the canon. Well, not canon, but you don't think it's inspired in general. Like, you have no reason to come up with a different interpretation than the, you know, the person making this argument just because you don't think it's inspired? Uh, I, I believe all of Scripture is inspired. Um, plenary inspiration, as I was reading from, from all Scriptures, God breathed. And I think that that extends certainly to the Protestant canon, maybe to the Deuterocanon, like the larger canon of like the Catholic tradition, potentially. I think Second Peter is inspired. What I'm saying is recognizing that it is part of inspired authoritative Scripture it's a separate question from whether it is pseudepigraphic or whether it has a correct authorial attribution. It, it could be that Peter wrote Second Peter. It could be that Peter didn't write Second Peter. Either way, I think it is canonical authoritative scripture. Gotcha. Okay. I see. I see. All right. Um, did you have any other scriptures that you felt were relevant to mention here that are, I guess, kind of uh, used to defend it inerrancy or inspiration or something like that? Uh, well, I think those are probably the main ones. There certainly are, are others, like Hebrews 4.12, I believe it is. I can pull mm -hmm. that one up. But uh, we can just quickly talk about it. Uh, so the word of God is, act, is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing, dividing soul and spirit, uh, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Now, is, is the word of God here referring to the Bible? Is it referring to the proclamation of God, any divine speech act, which could include scripture, but is not limited to scripture? That's an important question to ask. But I think that Hebrews 4.12 would include scripture. And what it is describing here is the importance of scripture in terms of offering a judgment and an uh, introspection into the heart and the lives of people and, and standing as a critical judgment and authority over them. Yeah, so it doesn't seem like it's making some statement like it's completely inerrant or or it just it seems like it's just helpful, essentially. I don't I, I don't think that there are any biblical texts 
that are like good proof texts for human or divine authorial inerrancy. Rather, I think the way that you get to inerrancy is through a sort of deductive argument, uh, like in terms of reasoning that, you know, God, for example, you know, God is a maximally capable author. And by maximally capable, I could say, you know, to knows all things and has all power to realize the text he wants to realize. And any author who is maximally capable in the way described, there would be no errors that would enter into their text. Therefore, there would be no errors that enter into scripture as a text from a maximally capable author. You could just develop a three-step argument like that. And I think that's how you would get to uh, reason to inerrancy. Now, this is just a reminder that when you do theology, one of the areas that you draw upon is what we call reason. So I'm a, I'm a Wesleyan within mm -hmm. the context of theological method very broadly. So I think we uh, I, I ascribe to Sola Scriptura, to the primary authority of Scripture as the norming norm of theological reflection. I'm informed by tradition and history. And then I think that we also draw upon experience and reason. And here would be an example where reason functions to defend adoption of inerrancy, of divine authorial inerrancy, by deductively reasoning that the text would be inerrant because the human author is this maximally competent author. Gotcha. Okay. I see. All right. So what would you say are the best reasons to think the Bible was dictated? Well, we would have to say what we mean by dictated. So on the one hand, with within uh, Islam, in dictation quite literally means dictation. That uh, the the angel spoke to to um, uh, Muhammad, uh, gave him what Muhammad wanted to say. Muhammad wrote it down and then repeated it back to the angel to make sure that he'd collect uh, correctly written down what the angel wanted relayed in terms of the Quran. That is quite literally dictation. When Christians talk about a dictation view, typically they don't mean that. What they actually mean is something like God had maximal control over every jot and tittle produced by the author. Often that concept of now, now psychologically in terms of the phenomenology, that's consistent with the human author being unaware of God having had every uh, control over every faculty uh, by which they were writing. They may have thought it was it was purely their own words, but in fact, God controlled them in every detail as to what was written. So often that's more what people mean in the, certainly in Protestantism when they talk about dictation. Now, why hold that view? Well, I mean, that view is often seen to be an outflow of the verbal plenary inspiration view I referred to earlier, which says that God controls not only the thoughts that are written down, but also the very words by which that thought is expressed. And um, some people say, well, that's best thought of as a process of dictation uh, because the, God has sort of eradicated the human author's own will at that point. And the human author has functionally become like the flute that is simply producing the music of scripture. Yeah. So that's what you, that's a good way to describe dictation uh, for someone that, um, I mean, what do you, what do you, would you say are the best reasons to take the view? I mean, obviously you have lots of passages where it says, you know, this is God's word speaking and you have, you have a lot of visions in the Bible. Um, what, what comes to mind for you? Well, I, so again, um, yeah, you do have things like that, but it, you also have the Proverbs or you have the Psalms or you have just a diversity of, of different writings. You have letters 
that appear to be very occasional documents like Paul's writing and saying, oh, and say hello to this person and this person, right? And it doesn't seem to have the sort of grand divine vision thing. So I think that how you would arrive at a dictation view uh, in terms of uh, a general view for the formation of all scripture would really come out of a particular understanding of, of God having this maximal control, providential control over the human vessels or agents by which scripture was written. Now, often as well, um, people talk in terms of dictation rather than just verbal plenary inspiration because they believe that that you can't have human free will if God has exercised that degree of control over the human author. And so the human author has now functionally become like the flute that is simply producing the music that is blown through it. Um, and so they might speak about uh, dictations because it's m even more than just maximal providential divine control, but that there's no room for the human agent uh, within the process. Now, Calvinists don't talk like that traditionally uh, because they believe that even though God fully controls the process by which scripture is created and thus it is verbal plenary inerrant, nonetheless, there is still room for the human will through which God acts. And so they, they don't talk about dictation, though they do talk about verbal plenary inspiration. Gotcha. What would you say are the best reasons to not take the view that the Bible was dictated? I think a, uh, one good reason to take it, uh, to not take that view, would come back to a model as to understanding what inspiration is. Um, so, for example, many Christians throughout history have explored a model of Scripture as uh, incarnation. Um, one well-known contemporary example of this is Peter Enns in his book, Inspiration and Incarnation. Uh, but it's been argued back to the early church. And the basic idea here is that we should think about inspiration as analogous to John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That um, the word who is uh, the son of God existing from eternity with the father became a physical incarnate being while retaining his full divinity. So he was fully divine and also fully human. And the idea then is when it comes to scripture, we should analogously understand scripture as becoming God's incarnate word. So scripture is the full authoritative divine word that God spoke into the world, but it also was spoken through a process that respected the maximal full humanity of the human authors. So it's equally divine and human. Uh, and this would then be consistent with a rejection of the dictation view because a person, if they're committed to an incarnational model of scripture, what they would worry is that if you had a dictation view, it would lose the human element of scripture and thus it would be functionally equivalent to docetism. Now, docetism is the view that in the incarnation, God the Son is fully divine, but not human. He only appears to be human. And the concern would be that if scripture was dictated, it would be fully divine but it would not actually be a fully human word because it was not produced by humans, but only by God controlling them as passive vessels. And so in order to reject dictation and maintain the full humanity of the human author and thus the full humanity of the text that was produced, you would, you would need to have another view of inspiration. Uh, and so I think that if you had that incarnational model, that'd be a good reason to reject a dictation view of scripture. So you don't see anything specifically in the text that makes you come to that conclusion? Is that well, right? I mean, no, well, that would be another thing. So, so another way to approach that would be to say, what kind of properties would we expect if scripture 
was a product of dictation versus a product of God working through very different human authors. And I think it's fair to say sort of that if it was just a process of dictation, you probably find more uniformity in terms of the expression in scripture than you do in fact find. Uh, you probably wouldn't find things like grammatical errors. Well, there is a high diversity in, in the way that the different texts are written. They seem to be written in a way that reflects the different capacities and skill sets of the human authors. So Luke, for example, is written in very high Greek. Mark is, is written in, in not as, as sophisticated Greek expression and with distinct literary characteristics. Um, I, mean, I did a degree in English Lit, remember? And, and um, when I think about Mark, I think more like Ernest Hemingway, somebody who writes just short, punchy sentences. And that's very much like Mark. It's very different than Luke. Um, the Revelation of John uh, there's a lot of grammatical errors uh, in the revelation of John. And sometimes it leaves translators scratching their heads to try to figure out how best to translate something because it seems like some of the grammar was incorrect. Uh, Hebrews is, is written in very impressive uh, Greek. Uh, so, so examples like that just show that there's the kind of diversity that you would expect if there was a significant contribution of the human author in the text. Whereas if it was just God dictating, you'd kind of expect that everything would have like sort of the same signature, right? And it would show much more unanimity than it in fact does. So I would agree that that would be another independent way of arguing against the dictation view. Yeah, I also, I mean, this kind of goes along with the idea of like, you know, scripture is clear to everyone, even to a little child. It seems like you wouldn't have as many context not contextual but like cultural references and um idioms and all that like if we're if we're trying to if we're trying to be god and you know if like ideally speaking like you didn't talk about the movies of like god speaking to people like you think a guy would want to be clear and like uh, and if, if god's like literally speaking exactly and then the writer's just writing it down you think that would also be an intention there uh, do you have any thoughts on that well, I would I just say in terms of perspicuity, so that's the concept here, is, uh, of course, Protestants traditionally accept the biblical perspicuity concept, and Catholics don't. And what Catholics believe is that you have to have a magisterium, a, a teaching authority that God has given to the church in order to give them the basic guideline for how to interpret Scripture. Protestants believe, no, God gave us a scripture that is in itself sufficiently perspicuous so that we can grasp the basic message of scripture. Uh, and so you don't need an official teaching authority, a magisterium like the Catholic Church offers, in order to understand the basics of scripture. The one thing that we'd want to immediately add, however, when we talk about perspicuity, is that it, it only applies to like the basic message of something. So, for example, when you read Revelation, you can get as many interpretations of Revelation as there are interpreters, because there's so much in there that is contentious in terms of how to interpret various prophecies and the overall architectonic structure of the book, etc. But what I think every reader can kind of come away with is that God is in control of history and his kingdom will come and there will be some tumult and uh, some war, some battle where the, the forces of evil are defeated prior to the ultimate end. But again, God's kingdom ultimately will come upon the earth. And prior to that point, there will be some degree of suffering and, and persecution. And you can get that on oh, Christ, of course, is at the center of all of that uh, in, in the revelation so that you can get the basic message, but still have a lot of room for interpretation. 
Uh, and so I would understand perspicuity, perspicuity to function at that level. Now, it is consistent then with that level of, of the nature of the text for there also to be ocean depths of meaning. In some ways, I like to compare scripture at this point to like a Pixar movie. Some of the best Pixar movies, uh, like WALL-E, for example, or Inside Out, they are, they are films that a five-year-old can watch and they can get the basic message and enjoy it at a, a particular level. And yet those films can also be debated by film critics in terms of what their full meaning and significance is. Uh, and scripture is certainly like that, but at a far more profound level, right? It's something that can appeal to a young, uh, relatively uneducated reader or hearer, but it can also speak ocean depths for the human community. I see. Okay, so this is obviously a very popular phrase. Okay, so we have, if one part of the Bible, one part of the Bible is wrong, then the rest of it's wrong. And, uh, you know, to a lot of it, it makes sense. So if someone says the words of a book are from God and God can't lie or be wrong, and if one tiny bit is wrong, then we must ask what else is God wrong about? And is it actually God who wrote the book? So wouldn't that cause you worry to say that, you know, parts of this, you know, human aspect is wrong? Uh, so... That as an argument, first of all, that might apply when it comes to a particular view of human authorial inerrancy, where you believe every human declaration, every human speech act within scripture is without error. But I'm not committed to that, right? I think, no, I'm committed to divine authorial inerrancy. But that's something very different because that doesn't ensure that the human reader will be able to identify what God is doing in every text. Uh, so I talk about this and I, I sort of lay out my systematic views on inerrancy and inspiration in my book, Jesus Loves Canaanites, where I, I, this is a foundation for me to address the problem of biblical violence and in particular apparent genocide that you find in Deuteronomy and Joshua. How do you understand that and grapple with that? And so I give you a framework for thinking about that. Now, along the way, so I give an illustration from the film, The Shining. So this is a, a famous uh film, a horror film based upon a Stephen King novel directed by Stanley Kubrick, a very well-known, famous director. Now, the interesting thing about it, first of all, is that Kubrick was a meticulous director and that every detail that was in the film was there for a reason. However, uh, a really interesting thing about The Shining when you watch it is that there appear to be errors within it, such as something that we call within film, critical study, uh, continuity errors. An example of a continuity error in The Shining uh, is that Danny, he's the young boy, and he, he's riding his big wheel around the carpet, carpet of the hotel, and his big wheel is sitting on the carpet at one point, and the pattern of the carpet is pointing in one direction, and a second later, the pattern of the carpet is pointing in the other direction. Now, that would be a continuity error. What it seems to be is that the filmmaker was not careful and messed up the film, and so the carpet is now in the wrong direction. Another example of a continuity error in the film is when um, Jack, he, he's the father and the caretaker of the hotel who goes crazy, and he's threatening to kill his wife. He has an axe, and he's hacking down the door in where in the room where she's hiding, and he hacks open one panel of the door, and a very one second later, they show the scene, and now there's two panels of the door missing. That's a, that's a glaring continuity error. So a film critic would look at that and you'd say, oh, those are errors in the film. However, because the filmmaker is Stanley Kubrick, who we believe to be just a, 
one of the most influential and sophisticated and meticulous filmmakers of history, what we say is, I don't know what's going on there, but there's a reason that the carpet changed direction. And there's a reason that that panel is missing. And so it's not actually an error. And we need to figure out what is going on in the film. And I have the same attitude when it comes to apparent errors in scripture. So when the scripture says something that from a human authorial perspective appears to be within error in terms of science or theology or ethics or something else, I don't say, oh, the text is an error. Now it's, it's uh, authority is being eroded away. Rather, what I say is I'm not sure what God is doing here and I need to figure it out. And then I'm going to study closer and wrestle with the text. And so that's my approach to that kind of dilemma. That kind of gets into a question I wanted to ask you about. So uh, a recent um, claim was made that, you know, if you if you if someone saw the, the words two plus two equals five in the Bible, that, you know, it, it brings a lot of interesting questions because, you know, we know from math that two plus two equals four. So it seems like the Bible would be wrong. And there's a lot of different approaches that one could take. Could you talk about what approach you would take if you saw a phrase like that in the Bible? Well, it, I mean, it's we have enough examples like that already. I mean, like some of them I'm giving us, right? With, um, for example, uh, to you know about uh, physical physically using a sebet to hit your child. Admittedly, that's that's not uh, something like two plus two equals five, which appears to be a logical contradiction. Right? But it is nonetheless appears to be an error. And I think the basic methodology would be the same. It's just to say, oh, I don't know why that's in there. Let's figure that out. Is it being ironic? Is it trying to get us to think about something else? Is it symbolic of something? Um, because, of course, we do that all the time. A sophisticated teacher speaks often in, in a way that's going to get their their audience, the, the interest of their audience peaked. And they're like, the, the, the audience is like, what are they doing? What's going on there? I got to figure out what, what they're trying to say, because that doesn't make sense. I mean, Jesus himself, when he teaches in John 6, he's saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And people are saying, this doesn't make any sense. And some of them like wander away. And the thing is, he left them in an epistemic state of confusion. He didn't say, this is what I actually mean. I'm just speaking metaphorically here, right? Uh, no, he dropped this in their lap and let them wrestle with it. Uh, and that was, I think, part of a process formatively that he as a master teacher or pedagogue, he was he was giving them this thing that they had to wrestle with. And I think there's a lot of that in scripture. And in fact, I think that, that that's exactly what you should expect from a text that is produced by a great author. Just in the way that um, a film like The Shining, one of the reasons that you know it's a great work is because um, it has things that appear to be continuity errors. But in fact, they are not. And you have to wrestle through what they are there for. So it is with the text of scripture that you, if you find two plus two equals five, well, you already believe there's a maximally competent divine author behind it. So now the challenge is to wrestle with what is that doing there and how should we think about it? But I don't think by any means you should either go the route of saying, okay, sometimes two plus two equals five, nor should I think you should say, oh, this erodes the authority of scripture. Uh, you can clearly go between those horns of that dilemma. Fascinating. That's all a great response. So on the topic of science, uh, you know, you've got a lot of arguments to say, okay, the, the ancient Israelites had this flat earth and dome and, you know, the heart was the kidneys or that's how they viewed or and the, the mind was the kidneys, all that kind of stuff, all those claims. Uh, what do you do with that approach? 
And are you okay with saying the, the biblical writers got scientific facts wrong? How does that work? Uh, this is, I think you referred to the concept of accommodation earlier. And I mean, that's exactly, I think, the basic framework that we should have here is to think about these things in terms of accommodation. So again, uh, first of all, we come back to the question, what is the point of scripture? What is it here for? Is it here to teach us about natural history? Uh, no, I think, again, what it is here to teach us is how to be better followers of Jesus. And you can have a text that the ultimate form of the purpose of it is to teach us how to be better followers of Jesus, which was written in the thought forms of the contemporary audience for whom the, you know, they were the primary audience, the first audience. And so any good teacher is going to meet the audience where they're at or going to accommodate them. And so God accommodated, accommodated to the audience where they were at. And so he accommodates to a three-storied view of the universe, to a rikia or a hard dome and the waters above, because that was the understanding of the ancient Near Eastern peoples. I mean, had God said, you know what, I'm going to begin with, with uh, teaching you about the solar system and the galaxy and the fact there's two trillion galaxies in the visible universe. Uh, I'm going to teach you uh, within the, the thought forms of Newtonian me mechanics and Einsteinian relativity theory and quantum mechanics, uh, because I want to get this right. Well, of course, that would just mean now the actual message, which was how to become like Jesus, would have been lost because people are like, I don't even know what's going on here. Well, but God's point wasn't to give you, give us a scientific lesson, but to accommodate to the original audience's understanding to make them more like Jesus. The other thing I would just add to that is, who says that we have science right today, right? Scientific theories are always changing and modifying. In 200 years from now, our understanding of the universe may be very different than it is today. So really the question is, well, then which science should God have accommodated to or spoken uh, his revelation in terms of? Well, uh, again, I think this is the wisdom of, of God in having met the human audience where they were at. Yeah, of course. So, and what would you say about the person that says, okay, so, you know, that seems to be what the writers believed. You talk about flat earth, dome, all that kind of stuff. Why, what's to say that, that God wasn't trying to teach us that because, you know, this is God's inspired word and it's true and all that kind of stuff. Well, one way we can know that God wasn't trying to teach us that is because we in fact know that that understanding of the universe is false. Uh, and God, if God is omniscient, God is not going to make mistakes about something as basic as the fundamental structure of the universe. So, I mean, I think that's really all you need to say. Uh, is that one of the things that science can do is is help. It, it doesn't necessarily tell us how to think about the text, but it can help us eliminate options. So, for example, in in, in Joshua ten thirteen, where it says, you know, that God made the sun stand still uh, in in the long battle, in the long day of the battle, uh, and so. There was a time the original authors and the original audience did think about the sun as physically moving across the sky and the earth was fixed uh, and the sun moved across it. And so it's not a metaphor, just as the sun rising for ancient peoples was not a metaphor. They actually believe the sun was rising, was moving. Um, but when we have the rise of, of a heliocentric understanding of the universe that at that time in the 17th century, the sun is the center and the earth moves around it. What that has now done is shown us how we shouldn't think about the text. Um, or uh, another one, Psalm 93.1, the earth is fixed on its foundation. It cannot be moved. 
there was a time when people thought part of the meaning of that text was that the earth is literally fixed and cannot move, but the sun moves around the earth. And again, that seemed to be shaken by an advent of heliocentric understanding of the universe. But what those understandings of the universe do is they don't undermine the authority of the biblical text. Rather, they show us how a particular way of reading the text was in error. And so that would be my view, is that every time uh, science advances in such a way that it offers a critique of some particular reading of Scripture, it's not undermining the authority of Scripture. It's critiquing our fallible human readings. Great answer. I appreciate you coming on here. Uh, Dr. Rouser, it's been a lot of fun. Um, would you like to give any last thoughts as well as a place people can reach you at? Obviously your website, your YouTube channel, anything else? Uh, well, um, yeah, so so you can uh, find me online at, at randallrouser.com. I would say if you want to read more about my views on these kinds of topics, uh, Jesus Loves Canaanites would be a good place to go, or my book, Conversations with My Inner Atheist, to a lesser degree, touches on these issues. But I would just say, <clears throat> don't be afraid of, of not having all the answers and finding that the Bible is a deeper book than we had anticipated and that we don't know how to answer everything. That's okay. I mean, that's what we should expect, I think, from a book that is given to us to wrestle with. And uh, the very name Israel means to wrestle with God. And we have been grafted into Israel. So as we read the text, we are invited to wrestle with God in his text. And the last thing I would just say about that is always keep in mind what the formative primary role of Scripture is, which is to make us like Jesus. So St. Augustine said, always read Scripture so as to increase your love of God and your neighbor. If we are reading Scripture in a way that leads us to further dehumanize or alienate other human beings or to alienate us from God himself, we're probably not reading it right. And so we need to go back to the text and submit to it and read it and explore ways to read it in, in ways that are consistent with becoming like Jesus. Awesome. Dr. Raz, it's been great having you on here. I've really enjoyed this. I'm sure a lot of people are going get, get, to uh, get stuff out of this. I appreciate you coming on, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thanks, Zach. Yes, sir.